All right, I'll pray and we'll get started. Lord, we just thank you that uh, you've granted us such a glorious morning to gather together and uh, reflect on who you are and take this time to just uh, rest from the cares of the world and instead be focused on heavenly things, Lord. Lord, I pray that we'd be a people that is uh, noted by their desire and their longing and their view of, of the eternal being far greater than anything temporal that we are surrounded with, Lord. Lord, we thank you that all things are working forward uh, towards the glory of your Son and his reign on this earth. And, and for that, we rejoice and we count ourselves privileged, not because of anything we have done, but because of the God that uh, has allowed us to know him. And with that, we turn to your word, Lord. Amen. So we're in uh, Genesis 46, and we kind of stopped halfway through the chapter, most of the way through the chapter. At verse 30 was where we stopped, where Jacob is now moved with the rest of his boys down to Egypt, where Joseph awaits him. And he and Joseph finally, um, they arrive in the land of Goshen, and, and Joseph goes up to see his dad, and they embrace, and they meet, and Joseph makes the statement, now let me die since I have seen your face and you are still alive. So uh, Jacob has now uh, seen himself as having lived his uh, life completely. And there's rejoicing in that. And yet there is this overarching sadness that is present in that as well. When you consider why they were separated, for how long they've been separated. And as we're going to see a little bit later, the life of, of Jacob uh, in general. Um, Jacob's been through a lot. So let's uh, start in uh, verse 31. And uh, as we read forward, again, just a reminder, what we're looking at here is the birth of the nation of Israel, the whole point of, of Joseph being sold, the whole point of Joseph becoming a slave and then a prisoner and then ultimately through the dreams that he interprets, that God gives him the interpretation of, he ends up uh, ruling over all of the land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. But all of that is for what we've covered last week and this week, and that is the establishment of an incubator for the people of Israel, for the nation of Israel to grow and prosper. And we're going to see that come to fruition. So that's what we're, that's what we're dealing with right now. And now we're going to see that God provides through Joseph exactly how that's going to work out. So when we see there in verse 31, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's house, household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, but we, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. 
So Joseph has a plan for their settlement. It includes exactly where they're going to live, the location, that it's going to be separate from the people in Egypt. Um, what is not only location, but what vocation they're going to have. They're going to be shepherds. They're going to be care for livestock. They're going to be kind of the farmers. And because they're loathsome to the Egyptians, not only is there a geographic separation and a vocational separation, but there is this cultural separation that's going to take place as well just because of the attitude that the Egyptians have towards those that care for the livestock. They look down upon them. And so Joseph has this plan and he's telling them exactly how this is all going to happen. The only reason Joseph would do this is because Joseph himself is looking forward to a time when they can return. Joseph has an understanding at this point that they are going to become a great nation, that they are going to, they themselves, separate from the world around them, are going to be the people of God. And he's looking forward to that. Joseph seems to have a strong understanding now of why God has sent them there. He he even stated that when he gave his brothers reassurance back in chapters 46. God did this to save you. God wants a remnant And that's what Joseph has now set forward, the plan. The the amazing thing here is he says, this is what you're going to tell the the most powerful man in the world who can decide whatever he wants to decide, and he's going to go along with it. Trust me. But we've seen, especially last week, that Joseph knows people. One of the things that Joseph has, reason Joseph is so good at being a leader and so good at organizing and so good at getting people to follow him is because he is a leader. And it's not just the people beneath him that notice it, it's the people above him. And even they follow what his instructions are and do what he says. It's an amazing character that God has just picked out of these 12 boys of Jacob's and set this on Joseph to do. And then chapter 47, verse one, we actually see them go and present the plan to Pharaoh with his brothers and his father. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, my father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented him to Pharaoh. Makes you wonder which five he picked. It doesn't tell us, but you can go through as, as you've learned a little bit about each one. Um, but he takes five of them and so half of them are there counting Joseph in front of Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable man among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. At at this point, you can imagine that Joseph's brothers were pretty impressed with Joseph. I mean, if they weren't before, now he said, this is what we're going to go. We're going to go talk to the Pharaoh. Yeah, I'm second in control, but he's, or I'm in control. He's, I'm second in command. Um, And he's going to do this. And they go and, and it happens just like Pharaoh says. So the five brothers are there and, and Joseph's plan plays out. He knows what Pharaoh's response will be. And not only are they allowed to stay but they get the best of the land for raising livestock 
And Pharaoh also puts them in charge of his own herds. And that should, that should echo back to when ever Joseph was in charge of anything, he ended up being in charge of all of his master's things as well because God continued to bless him. There's a good chance Pharaoh knew and understood that everything this man Joseph takes care of that you put in his charge does really well. And he, he acts upon that as well. And we see this blessing play out. And, and just remember, this is, Genesis is, is, is unique among all, I'm going to say all of the uh, books of the Bible in that its author is writing historically. Meaning Moses, the author of Genesis, is telling the people of Israel things that happened from the beginning of the world up to 400 years before Moses is around, writing to a people to explain to them now, here's why you're in the situation you're in. Other books we call historical, certainly Exodus is historical, but then so are the Gospels. They're telling us about things that happened in our past. And here the author is explaining the history of the Jews to the Jews. This is why you ended up in Goshen. This is why you ended up, you know, you remember all the hardship of being slaves, but understand that this is how you came to be in Egypt. This is why you were there. And this is how it is you are now being carried out. As they're starting to get to the point where at the end of Genesis, we jump to Exodus and now we've got Moses being born. And Moses is now writing about the time in his, within his own lifespan. Well, this is, this is looking back. So this is historical for even the author by, by quite a bit. So we have here that uh, the, the plan of Joseph plays out. And then we see Jacob being presented to Pharaoh. Verse 7, then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. So Joseph is presenting Jacob and Jacob turns around and blesses Pharaoh. It's a really interesting interaction here because you have the most powerful man in the world and you have one of the patriarchs of, of the people of God combined. In fact, the father of all the 12 tribes in Jacob. And it's Jacob then that offers the blessing to Pharaoh. And you get the picture that this is the greater blessing, the lesser, even though that's switched. There's certainly an age difference between the two, but there's also this this implied, I think, position that, that Jacob is the one who holds some sort of higher position than even Pharaoh. It's a, it's, a, it's a little bit strained interaction, especially when you see the way Pharaoh, Jacob responds to Pharaoh's question, how many years have you lived? Pharaoh is the one who directs questions here 
um, putting him in the position of authority. But Jacob's response then is not necessarily what you would expect. Here's a man that's going to grant your family a place to live and survive. He's, going, he's just said he's gonna give you the best of it. He's gonna employ, he's gonna give an occupation to, to your men, so they're your sons, so they have things to do as well. And when he says, how many years have you lived? Jacob is basically like, well, they aren't very many. And to be honest, it's been really bad. <laughs> it's like... Not, not putting his best foot forward, but Jacob here is, is being very honest. Jacob's kind of a sad sack of a man. And that's what he's saying. His years of his sojourning were 130. He's going to live another 17 in the land of Egypt. And he says, few and unpleasant. And if, if you're like me, you're going to 130. I'm not even half that yet. That sounds like a lot of years. But then he, he clarifies that certainly when you look at the years of of. Uh, Abraham and Isaac, I, I'm not living as long and, and I know I'm not going to be around as long as they were. Kind of a sad response that, that Jacob has here to Pharaoh. And it is kind of interesting just in passing as a, as a physician, I just, just so you guys are aware, the whole thing where you say, well, I'm going to live a long time because my parents did, it's not true. Just, I know, it's shocking. Um, unless your parents lived like you did. 17% of your lifespan is based upon your lifestyle, or I'm sorry, by your genetics. The other 83% is based on your lifestyle, which comes into play here because what does he mean that my years have been unpleasant? Let me just list for you, the major events of Jacob's life, aside from when he wrestles with God and has an episode where he actually meets with God. Those are kind of the highlights, the high points, such as when he met with God before he came to the land of Egypt. And if we're honest, he wrestled with God and received an injury. Um, And that wrestling with God uh, is indicative of basically what as he's named Israel, what the people of Israel do from here on out. The rest of the times he meets with God, it's to get reassurance that I am with you, it's gonna go okay. I am with you, you're leaving the land of Canaan, you're going up to live with Laban, I'm with you. Comes back down, don't worry, you're gonna meet your brother, I am with you. He's gonna go to Egypt, don't worry, it's gonna be okay, I am with you. Why is he having to constantly offer this poor man all this reassurance? It's because his life is hard. Let's look at the other events of Jacob's life. Why is it unpleasant? Well, he was born on day one. He was born as the usurper. That's his title. He is the one who had strife with his brother from day one. They were totally different. Even though he was given the fact that, yes, there even before he was born that the older would serve the younger. His father refused to acknowledge that. He refused to acknowledge that Jacob was the one. Jacob was the one who the line would flow through. So even before he was born, there was strife and conflict. Certainly it didn't help that his mom and dad had their favorites and their favorites weren't necessarily based upon God's idea of what was going to have take place. And then we have the fact that Uh, he took the opportunity to buy his brother's birthright for a bowl of porridge. 
and the strife that that brought about. He, fair is fair, but again, brings strife. Oh, okay, red stew. Red lentil stew. Red lentil stew. Thank you. What I call it, porridge? Anything that's kind of in a bowl is porridge. They could have, yeah. Probably like goat or sheep. Okay. And lentils. And lentils. That's true. If I get that part of scripture wrong, I'm okay. Moving from there. Any further off than that, I get really nervous. Um, Okay. Yeah. He stole a blessing that actually belonged with, to him with the help of his mother that ended up causing his brother to want to kill him. So he had to leave the country. He didn't just leave the city that he's in. He leaves the country to run away. He meets this beautiful woman that ends up, he has to work 14 years to get her. And turns out she's not the, the, the best and, and brightest spark. She's beautiful. Um, but he ends up married to four women, which, again, his life was unpleasant. <laughs> I don't think that's a highlight that he would say, yeah, oh, yeah, I had four wives. That worked out great. There's a lot of strife that went into that. Just look at the names of those children that he has. He did have a lot of kids. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. Kids, kids are great, right? Woo! Um, He is forced to run away from his father-in-law who's cheated him and and stole from him in the 20 years he worked for him. So he runs away in the cover of darkness for fear of his life, running out of the frying pan and into the fire that is his brother waiting for him back in the land of Egypt. Egypt. who ends up accepting him. Good thing there. He gets to settle in the land. God said, don't worry, it'll be okay. You'll be back in the land. And he does that. But what about those boys and his daughter? His oldest son slept with one of his wives. His daughter gets raped by the people that live near them. And two of his boys then convince that all the men in the village to circumcise themselves as adults Um, and I've only seen one of those and not pleasant. Circumcise themselves as adults and while they're in their misery, slaughter all of them. So that whole having these kids thing wasn't necessarily working out. The wife who he loved, who was dearest to him, finally has a son, and then when she has a second son, she dies in childbirth at a younger age. His favorite son comes to him one day and says, Dad, guess what? Someday you're going to serve me. You're going to bow down to me. You're going to be subordinate to me someday. And we saw his response to that. Jacob didn't like that. That was his best son. His other boys, again, his children should have, the 13 kids he had should have been, the, the light of his life should have been, the thing that brought him such great joy, certainly in this culture. His other boys sold his favorite son into slavery and then went home and lied and said he got eaten by an animal. So he loses his, his, his favorite wife, 
the one he was betrothed to that would have, you just have to wonder if that would have worked out what, what it would be. We can ask God. He knows the what ifs of future. If she had have been the first one he would have married. So he, he ends up not only losing that in it, but then he finds out down the line that it was all a lie, that Jake, Joseph was still alive and that his brothers had sold him and then let himself believe that, that he had been killed. So he finds out about the lie. And so you can kind of see, and then, and then finally he has to flee the land of promise because of famine. He can't stay in the land of Canaan anymore. You can see why when he meets Joseph, he says, okay, now I can die. Just let this be over. This has been a long, hard life. I really like Jacob. If there's one character that we've covered and, and we've hit them all now um, that I'm most impressed with, is it's Jacob. Um, not always doing the right thing and certainly struggling, but, but when you look and see what he went through and what type of life he had, um, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. So his presentation of who he is in, to Pharaoh, and you wonder if this, got, if this is paraphrased or if this is exactly what he said, but uh, you'd imagine he could, he could keep Pharaoh entertained for quite some time explaining him the few and unpleasant years of his life during his sojourning. And again, we, we could go into the fact that he is a sojourner, that this is not the place where he is ultimately headed. He's ultimately headed to be with his fathers. So then the, the statements made at the end there um, that Joseph settled his fathers and his brothers in, the possess, in their possession in Egypt and the best of the land, the land of Ramses, another name for Goshen, that would have probably been more current or would have been more current to the, the uh, people who are hearing this text just as Pharaoh had ordered. So then it says, Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all their father's households with food according to their little ones. It's very interesting. We, we saw that, that when they divided up the, when they made provisions during the healthy years for the lean years that were going to come, they tried to keep track of it and count it and, and know what was going on. And you, I just picture Joseph as this person who, um, if not an accountant, would, would have been one someday. Um, but certainly, if you want to know who manages things well, they know their numbers and they know what goes where and how much is needed and how to keep track of it and... Um, they don't just, uh, so, many, so many people think that, oh, I'm really good at managing because look at the outcome and you ask, well, how much of this do you have? Well, I have no idea. Um, there's enough. We won't, we'll be fine. But Joseph knows everything down to the point that in Joseph, Joseph's a wealthy man here, right? He's got everything. I mean, he, he, when he went and got his father, Pharaoh sent him with a ton of stuff. He comes back. Pharaoh gives them anything they want. They can settle wherever they want. Here's land. Land's precious. You have all of this stuff. And how does Joseph then grant food to his father's household? It's not, you get everything. It's, okay, how many of you are there? Here's how much you need. You can have it. It's just interesting. The scripture points out that the way Joseph provides, 
He provides for their needs, not their wants. He makes sure that everything they have, everything down to the smallest of their children, is provided for, and it doesn't mention any, any more than that. It's an interesting insight into who Joseph is and the way he manages and the way he cares for people and the type of person he is. Again, I would love to, to, someone could write a book on the management style of Joseph and the leadership style of Joseph. It would be very interesting. And there's a ton of material here, but I don't, I don't want to just jump over chapter, or verse 12 there. So now we have the people in the land and Joseph is provided for them through Pharaoh's generosity. And verse uh, 13, so this is Joseph's plan for Egypt. And in verse 13, there was no food in the land because the famine was very severe. So the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. So we're a couple years into the famine. Um, And Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt because that's what they bought the grain with. So then when all the money had been spent in verse 15, they still needed food um, or they were going to die. And so Joseph in 16 says, well, okay, give me your livestock and I'll give you food for your livestock since your money is gone. And so they brought him the livestock then and um, trades it for food. And when that year's ended in verse 18, um, they have (laughs) all of our livestock is left the only thing we have now is our bodies and our land. Um, we understand we don't want to die, so why don't you buy us and our land for food and uh, we will be, and our lands will be slaves for Pharaoh, um, that, that we don't die and the land is not desolate. So then Joseph in verse 20 buys all the land for Pharaoh. Um, then the land becomes Pharaoh and he takes the people out of the land. You have to remember, they can't grow anything out there on the land. So he moves them all to the cities, um, all over the land. They come to the cities, only the land of the priests he doesn't buy. Um, they, they get an allotment from Pharaoh. Uh, and so they keep their land. So that's not clear, I don't think. But it does mention the wealth of, while they're there, the, the Israelites are going to get wealthy. And they are going to have property. And if that property is land and possessions, I suspect they kept their land. So this is buying up the land of the other Egyptians, other Egyptians and other people in the area who have land. Yes. from them, now comes Pharaoh, and these people are... Yeah. Yeah, and so we see that, because certainly the Israelites weren't moved to the cities. And so what's really interesting here is, uh, one, he's got the food. Why doesn't he just give it to them? Right? Because he could just say, well, I've got the food. Let me give you the food. He's like, no, 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 no. I will buy the food from you. Um, And then, so, so they pay the money for the food. And that, it's like, okay, that's fine. Well, animals... That's all we got left are some animals and land and us. Okay, well, take your animals. He changes it for food. So Joseph, again, is, is you think to yourself for a second here, now, wait a second, you just bought their, their cattle and their land and themselves, and he owns all of it. It is interesting that the people in the land go together. Um, 
that when he buys them, he buys them both. That the people, in fact, say all that's left is ourselves and our land, our bodies and our land, um, that those things are connected. Um, but he does all this, and you could say it's kind of cold and heartless, but let's jump back. What percent of the, of the food in the seven years of, of plenty did Joseph collect from the people? You guys remember? 20%. And that was enough to, that 20% is enough to keep all of the land of Egypt and the countries that are affected by this famine, which is basically the whole known world, supplied for seven years. That 20% was enough to supply for seven more years. How much did the people keep? 80%. Why don't they have food left? Because they also got, the, they lived through the plenty as well. And it isn't as though, okay, the government's going to take 20% and leave you with just enough to live on. The government's only going to take a fifth of it and leave you with plenty and the people run out. And the people seem to have an understanding as well that, well, okay, um, that's fair. I will trade my life for my cattle. I will trade my land for my life. I will trade um, slavery for not dying. And there seems to be an understanding that, that Joseph is being fair with them. All that to say is that, again, Moses is explaining how it is that, that not only did they end up in the land, but kind of why it is Pharaoh has the power he has. Um, it's because Pharaoh implemented a plan that in times of great plenty, he trusted in the man of God's plan to save the people of Egypt. And in doing so, he actually provided a way for the land of Egypt to be sustained. And the people didn't necessarily respond. I think they didn't respond to that time of plenty as well. And they became reliant on Pharaoh. And in exchange for their service to Pharaoh moving forward. But we are going to find out that the people still, well, let's just read. Um, Verse 23, then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is the seed for you and you may sow the land and the harvest. You shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own seed of the field and for your food and for those of your household and for your little ones. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt valid to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. Only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. So the people gladly do it. The people understand that, that they now have exchanged their lives for the sustenance they need to continue living. That's a fair trade, I think, um, in, a, in a time of famine. Um, but it isn't that the expectation isn't that you're going to no longer produce. There still needs to be production on the land and you still only have to give 20% to Pharaoh. The rest you get to keep. And the rest you can use to buy things and, and feed yourselves and take care of your families and, and that's up to you. It's an interesting system and not dissimilar from the non uh, we're going to find out that, the, for those of you that know your Bibles, know that the Levites were given land. The priests were given land inside the land of Egypt. They didn't have any tribal land, but they had specific cities were there that were theirs. And they also had uh, 
provided for by the people, and it was about a two 10% tithes, tithe being 10% that came in to run the system, uh, the, the governmental system in, in Israel as well. So it mirrors what's happening here that's actually set up by Joseph. So they could look back and say, why are we doing this? This is how Egypt did it. Say, well, actually, Egypt got it from Joseph. Joseph's the one who set this whole thing up. So there's that, I think, at play here as well. Um, so now with Israel in 27, Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they were acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. So it seems that Israel is being separated, the people of Israel are being separated out in what this is. But remember, they are still under the direct control, ultimately, of Pharaoh. Um, He's the one that has allowed them to live on that land. Um, And there's a decent chance that the land remained Pharaoh's. We don't know for sure. Um, When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said... So now we're getting into an episode of the end of Jacob's life. Um, and it's going to, it starts here and then we'll, we'll see how far we get. It works through, uh, through almost the end of 49. And we're going to learn about setting up for the future, not only in Egypt, but also the future of the, the people of Israel when they get to Canaan. So when the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, please, I have found favor. If I have found favor in your sight, place your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. He said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Um, what you think it might mean. <laughs> so it's a very intimate thing th- that happened with Abraham in regards to getting Isaac, his wife. Don't get a, he told his servant, don't, and I've just forgotten his name. Yeah, no, I remember it, but so this yeah. is the second time we've seen it. Yeah. Yep, inside the thigh. We don't do that today. <laughs> kind of. It's, 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 it's a way of showing submission and vulnerability at the same time, but it is, this is, this is deep. This is a deep commitment. I am. I, this is the oath of all oaths. They have a hand sanitizer. They had a hand sanitizer. Urine is sterile. Just if you're curious, um, it's one of my favorite quotes. It's, like, it's right up there with all bleeding stops eventually. Um, meaning, put pressure on it, right? Put pressure on it, and it'll stop eventually. Right. Okay, um, so he, he makes this, he makes him swear that he will go back to the land. Um, and you should think of, of, somebody help me with the name of Abraham's servant. Is it Eliezer? Yeah. Eliezer, 
when Eliezer goes to find a wife for Isaac, he needs to go and find a wife from Isaac, not from the women in Canaan, because he doesn't want to blend those cultures. He wants to keep them separate. And now we're seeing this same action brought about. And I think you should be thinking of, okay, this is probably the, the, what's the most important thing to the patriarchs? Getting this nation started, getting these, keeping these people separate. And so he's saying, we, we actually own some land in Canaan. Do you remember what land they own in Canaan? They own one piece of land. Where the tombs, the family tombs are. That's their toehold in Canaan. He's saying, take me back there. That's where I need to be buried because that's where we ultimately belong. Do not bury me here. And if you go back when before he came, God promised him he would get to return. And this is how that's going to happen. It's not going to be in his lifetime, but he's going to return in his death, which says something about what he believes about life and death. If you remember Abraham, when he offers up Isaac, he does so, and Hebrews says, and you can get it from the text, it's not explicitly stated in the text, Hebrews said he did so because he believed that God could even bring someone back from the dead. So these are people who believe that God is still the God of their fathers. Their fathers who have died, God is still their God. He is still the God of the living And he wants this picture, not that he will be in his body, but he wants the picture that he has returned to the land of promise. It's incredibly important. Now, as we get to 48, we should jump ahead to Hebrews 11. Let's look at Hebrews 11 really quick. Thank you for those of you who brought Bibles so I can hear the pages turning. It's a nice sound. Hebrews 11, we have the hall of faith. And in the hall of faith, we have these amazing acts of faithfulness that people do. I mentioned in verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. And it was he to whom it was said, and Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. And then we see, so, so that's the action of faith, one of them, but that is like, hey, look at Abraham. What a great guy he was. He left where he came from. Great action of faith. He believed God would give him a son. Great action of faith. He was willing to, to, to sacrifice that son because he believed in God. What a great action of faith. And then we saw, well, what did, what did Isaac do? How does he get into the hall of faith? Well, he blessed Jacob and Esau. But we looked at that and it was actually... Jacob and Esau, that blessing that came after he tried to bless Esau and ends up blessing Jacob and he realizes that it's the right thing. I don't want to go back and rehash that. But then we see this is Jacob's big action of faith. And that is that uh, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. So that is to say that, as it, and, and if you read on, you're going to hear about Moses and what he did in freeing the Egyptians, what his parents did in hiding him, and then what Rahab the harlot did to save them, and then Gideon and Barak and Samson and, all, and David and Samuel and all the prophets, and these are great men of faith, and look back and see everything they did. But remember Jacob, because Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph. 
and leaned on his staff and worshiped. This is his big action of faith. Uh, and so let's, let's see what's, what's faithful here. So chapter 48, one through seven. Now it came about that after these things that Joseph was told, behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim with him. And when it was told to Jacob, behold, your sons, Joseph, have come to you. Israel collected his strength and sat up in bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, and if you look back, there's two occasions that this took place. Um, Not sure which one he's referring to. Um, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give you this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in the inheritance. Now as for me, when I came from Paden, Rachel died, to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So, context here, Jacob is explaining what's about to happen to Joseph. And it's not just that he's going to be blessing Joseph's two sons in this ceremony where he adopts them as his own children, but he's going to go on to bless the rest of the sons. Well, why is that important? Why is that such an action of faith? It's an action of faith because Jacob has been removed from the land of Israel, the land of Canaan that they will have, and he's about to make a plan for when you go back there. This is the inheritance. This is how I want you to divide up the inheritance of the land to the people. And this is, this is, this is what each one of you is going to be your own separate tribe, your own separate family union, unit when you get there. And this is how it's going to happen when you go back to the land. The great action of faith here, as Jacob is dying, he knows and understands that God's plan is going to come about, just as God has said it would. He has lived an incredibly difficult life, and one would not be faulted if they thought this has not worked out at all like God said it would, and this is going to end disastrously. Here we are in a foreign country. My sons and their families are doing really well here. I don't know why they'd ever want to leave, but you know what? They're going to, and they're going to have the tribes, and they're going to actually receive a specific inheritance of the land. They aren't, they aren't talking about inheriting dad's favorite wagon or um, his bow that he, he's used for 40 years or whatever. It's, this, this is the land that they're talking about here. The land is in his sight, and I think that's the major action of faith that we're seeing So they're meeting to discuss the inheritance. People are doing well. And we're seeing a ceremony being set up here that is very similar to the ceremony that was set up between Isaac and who he thought was Esau when he, blessed Esau, when he ended up blessing Jacob. So we see that they're... they're um, working on, let's see, verse 3, God Almighty appeared to me in Luz, 
from the land of Canaan. I will make you fruitful and numerous in the company. Uh, I'll make you a company of people and will give the land to your descendants after your possession. So this is, God is the one who has granted this inheritance. This inheritance is an everlasting possession. It's, it's going to be yours for all perpetuity. As long as that land is there, it, it will be yours. And you're going to divide it among your children. Your children will each receive a full portion. So in the adoption now that we're about to see take place with uh, Joseph's two sons, uh, we see that they are going to now hold the, the, the position of the firstborn. The, uh, it is interesting that Joseph is not the one who does, right? Joseph has turned out to be this amazing kid who grew up to be an amazing man and an amazing ruler, and he saves all his brothers. And I think part of it is that Joseph here is going to receive a double portion as his inheritance as the firstborn might be expected to. Uh, and that double portion will be each one of his sons receives a portion. Uh, but it's also interesting that there is no tribe of Joseph. We don't talk about the tribe of Joseph and he's one of the, the 12. Um, the tribe of Levi gets kind of removed as a tribe and gets separated out to God. And by the addition of these two boys being tribes, they themselves become, the, the number returns to 12. That's, that's another way to look at it. Um, but also, well, why would Joseph be the first among his brothers? He certainly wasn't, he was number 11 in the birth order, but you have to remember he was born to Rachel, and I think that's what verse 7 here is reminding us of, is that, look, Joseph, Rachel was your mother. She was the one nearest and dearest to me, and she died early, and boy, you know, Kind of planned on having more kids with Rachel, but didn't. And there's that in the back of the mind. And also just the idea that she is the one that he was contracted to marry first. It didn't work out that way, but his children with her are the ones that he moves to the front of the line when Joseph is born. It's why he received the coat of many colors. And it's why he was loved by his father more than the others, as well as the age that his father had when he was born. So all those things are working out here in the granting of Ephraim and Manasseh, rather as receiving the blessing as being the firstborn, rather than Reuben and Simeon, who are discounted because of the type of men they were. <clears throat> and also because of who their mother was. Um, so, Again, one of the other interesting things here is that Genesis is working us towards the seed, who, who, the one that's going to come and, and crush the serpent's head. That's the one they're looking for, an answer for sin, an answer for getting back right with God. Joseph isn't that answer. And here we see that, that Jacob, I believe, understands that and knows that that's the case. Um, it looks like in the next chapter, he's going to be granting that position to to actually the tribe of Judah, which we know, looking back, that that's the case. So while Joseph would be the special one, he's not the seed that's, plant, that's promised. Joseph was plucked out of his brothers by God as a, in a special role that is now coming to its fruition and then will be done. So then we see the blessing here take place with the boys. 
Starting in verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim at that age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. So the, this ceremony that's taking place, you can picture it as uh, Jacob sitting on some sort of chair, and Joseph comes forward, and these are grown men that are with him, right? Um, Jacob has been there for 17 years, grown men that are with him, and so there's a good chance based on the fact that Joseph here is kneeling, that his sons would also be kneeling before um, Jacob, and that there's a close interaction going on here with Manasseh and Ephraim and uh, their father and grandfather, uh, that they're brought in close to one another. And certainly it says that Jacob can't see, but it doesn't mean he can't be aware of what's going on and have some dim vision so that while he may not be able to recognize them, Joseph has identified who they are. And again, they're in very close proximity. And this would have been basically the same ceremony, this blessing part, They've now been then adopted, declared that they are now adopted. They are now as the children of Jacob. And now that that's been done, Jacob can now offer them the blessing. And so that's the ceremony going on. And so Joseph humbles himself before his father by bowing his face to the ground and then moving his children forward uh, to his father. And his father switches hands so that his right hand goes on the firstborn and his left hand on the second. Do understand that the hands are on both. And if you sneak a peek forward, you're not going to find, here is the blessing that belongs to Manasseh, and here is the blessing that belongs on Ephraim. He's going to offer a blessing to both of them here. So he blessed Joseph, and said, well, why, what do you mean he blessed Joseph? He's about to bless the boys, right? Well, understand the boys are taking the place of Joseph and are being the blessing of the boys and the blessing of Joseph then is, is all one and the same. But it's specifically for the boys. So he blesses Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all of my life to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads. And may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So he's in the middle of this blessing and Joseph goes, wait. Uh, Dad, you laid your right hand on Ephraim's head and... Uh, he goes to move his father's hand, and Joseph says, Not so, 
or Joseph says to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So, Jumping back inside this blessing, I'm going to just look at this. So he blesses the boys, ultimately blessing Joseph, but he blesses the boys and he gives God three different designations. And it is interesting. He's the God of his fathers. He's the God who is a shepherd. And he is the God who is the angel. You could claim that God of the fathers, who's God the father, God of the shepherds, is who shepherds through his life, who works through circumstances and everything in his life, is the God of, uh, is, is the Holy Spirit, and the angel is the messenger from God, certainly the one he would have wrestled with. And interestingly enough here, he's the one who redeems him from all evil, would be God the Son. So the Trinity, I think you could make an argument, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't prevent it, um, that this is, he's referring to the, the, the triune God here. But it is interesting that all three are mentioned, all three descriptions of who God is without separating who he is. He's a single person, but he mentions him in three parts, which is interesting. And that's who his understanding is that that is the blessing that these boys are going to need. They're going to need what he had. They're going to need the God who is over all and sovereign over all, who sees all and judges all, the God that is, is the God who is involved intricately with the day-to-day struggles of his life. And remember, it wasn't a good life. But even in that, God has been his shepherd all the way through. And then finally, the God who is the one who has redeemed him from all the evil that he's seen in his life. And he's seen plenty. And all too often, our thoughts of God in this context or these thoughts or ideas about who God are tend to be ones we have when things are really good. And this is a man who looks back on his life and says, my life is really, really hard. I had a lot of struggles in my life. And this is the God who is with me. And, and he deserves honor and praise. He deserves to be worshiped. And these boys will have him as their guide and their protector and their redeemer. It'll be he who is over, over them entirely. And he places them directly in the line of the patriarchs then. And Joseph finally gets uncomfortable enough to intervene and say, whoa, whoa, wait, which must have been, again, the solemnity of this ceremony for him to to interrupt would have been rude, um, to say the least. But here we have Jacob, the usurper, who received the blessing above his older brother, rightfully, but through trickery, saying, no, I know what I'm doing. And you can imagine the thought in his head is, no, I've been here before and I've seen how this works, guys. I know what I'm doing. My dad had no idea. I am doing exactly what's supposed to be done because it's supposed to be done, not because anyone's tricked me into it. And then he grants the, gives Jacob the, or Joseph the understanding of why this is. It's because Ephraim will be greater than Manasseh which is 
prophetic for what will happen. Ephraim, probably the, the biggest thing is Ephraim becomes synonymous with the northern kingdom, Israel. You could use their names interchangeably later. Um, and they were a great and powerful tribe. Um, and Manasseh was, was a tribe, but never achieved the greatness of Ephraim itself. So then 21 and 22, Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So a promise to Joseph that you will also go back to the land. I've been promised to go back to the land. I'm going to go back because you swore to take me. You will also go back to the land of your fathers. It's going to happen a lot later than, than in Jacob's life, or Jacob's death. Um, there'll be a 400-year time gap, but Joseph himself will return to the land. And then I would say this next portion is a, is a prediction rather than something that happened in the past that we don't know about, where he says, I'm going to give you one more, give you one portion more than your brothers. So, you're going back to the land as a prediction. Your boys are going to receive each a portion, so you end up getting one portion more than your brothers. And that portion is going to come through fighting with the Amorite, with the sword and my bow. That's how I would say that that's laid out, but we don't know for sure. We don't, it, it, it might just be a really good reminder. We have no idea everything that happened in the Old Testament and everything that happened in his life. So now we're going to move next week into the blessings of individual tribes. And remember, this is all falling in line with Jacob is looking forward to the promise God has made to him. He's looking forward to what God is going to do in his descendants. And he's looking forward. He hasn't lost sight of the land that, yes, the people are going to grow here in Egypt, but they will get back to the land. And he's making accommodations even now with Joseph's son for that eventuality, accepting it by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we just acknowledge that we need help with our faith, and it certainly is encouraging to see that even a man of, with all his flaws like Jacob uh, was granted faith to believe in your promises, Lord, and I pray that you would allow us that same faith that we could trust and believe in you so strongly just as he did. We thank you for this morning. I pray you would be with us, that you would encourage us, and that we would find those around us to encourage uh, with your goodness and love as well. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.